On April 20th, 2010, 28-year-old Caleb Holloway was working late on the main deck of the Deepwater Horizon. His job was intense, but he loved laboring well into the night under the massive industrial lights and the gigantic tower of the oil drill. Holloway took a breather, stretching his back. As he did, he noticed something odd. Liquid oozed up and out of the rig's large vertical pipe. Mud. That could only mean one thing. The immense pressure from the well was forcing debris back up the tube. Something had gone horribly wrong. Holloway warned a colleague named Dan Barron, and they raced to the drill's control room. As they ran, water and sediment exploded from the tower above them. When they got to the watertight door, they stopped. If the situation was as bad as they feared, the other side would contain the full fury of the blowout. Holloway and Baron took a deep breath to brace themselves and plunged in. Sure enough, sludge sprayed everywhere inside, instantly soaking them. The conflagration sounded like a rocket taking off. Dislodged objects flew past their heads. As they wiped their glasses and tried calling for help, they felt another substance coat their skin. Gas. It was in their mouths and noses. It hung in the air and spread through the room. Holloway and Baron shared a moment of panic. There was no telling how far the flammable mist had spread on the rig. They needed to shut everything down and warn their colleagues. Otherwise, one spark would incinerate the entire crew. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on peak oil, a theory that fossil fuel production will decline in a few short decades. The U.S. government and energy companies have known about this since the late 1950s, but they've done little to transition to more sustainable options. Last episode, we explored the history of the petrol industry and examined how society developed its insatiable craving for crude. We learned about the iron grip energy companies had on the economy in the early 1900s and the illegal acts they committed to maintain their power. And we covered the devastating fallout of a gas shortage in the 1970s. Today, we'll discuss a few conspiracy theories about peak oil like the possibility that the American government is covering up a natural alternative fuel. We'll also look at the reason why the U.S. invaded Iraq. And finally, we'll determine if companies like BP weaponized peak oil theory to justify drilling in wildlife reserves. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In 1918, Germany was suffering. World War I had decimated their population and national treasury, not to mention the low morale after their loss. Everything seemed dire. That is, until the 1920s, when two researchers named Franz Fischer and Hans Tropes discovered something incredible. While working at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry, they converted coal into gasoline. They named the procedure the Fischer-Tropes, or FT, process. Before then, scientists had believed that the substance could only be created when dead organisms decayed over millions of years. That's why oil is known as a fossil fuel. But the FT process proved that fuel didn't need organic material. Researchers just had to mix chemicals in a lab to create so-called abiotic oil. Their discovery essentially meant that gasoline wasn't as scarce as some people thought. Any country could create all the energy they needed. This was good for humanity as a whole, but bad for oil companies. If the abiotic method became widely available, they couldn't sell their barrels at a premium rate which meant they had a vested financial interest in covering up all the evidence of the FT process. That brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Companies have intentionally suppressed abiotic research because it would undercut their massive profits. After World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union recovered Fisher & Tropes' research, they went on to confirm that the formula would, in fact, produce large amounts of fuel. But the U.S. government eventually discontinued their abiotic research and development projects. In his book, The Great Oil Conspiracy, conspiracy theorist Jerome Corsi suggests a sinister explanation for why this happened. He theorizes that American officials conspired with oil companies to kill the studies, 
This way, they could continue selling their product at increasingly higher prices. It's more likely that the government stopped researching it because it didn't make financial sense. Conventional wells cost only about $1 million, only took a few weeks to drill, and made the money back within a year or so. That's a significant investment, but it's far less expensive than a Fisher Tropes facility. Those cost hundreds of millions of dollars for specialized equipment, need several years to start producing, and even more time than that to turn a profit. Whatever the U.S.'s motives, according to Corsi, Russia was thought to lack large natural fossil fuel deposits. To get the energy they needed, they had to investigate and expand upon the FT process. Through their research, they realized that the chemicals necessary to create petroleum in a lab also exist in the Earth's crust. This led a Soviet scientist named Nikolai Kudryatsev to speculate that perhaps all crude oil was produced abiotically. If true, it wouldn't take millions of years for organic matter to turn into fuel. The Earth was constantly replenishing its supply. And according to Kudryatsev, the conditions were perfect for nature to create its own FT petroleum deep beneath the Earth in a region called the Mantle. The mantle is over 1,800 miles thick, but the top layers are only tens of miles beneath the planet's surface. Nikolai's hypothesis was huge and nearly impossible to prove. Even today, oil rigs are only capable of digging around six miles into the ground. That means they fall many miles short of any abiotic reservoirs. And even if they could go that deep, the Earth's heat and pressure would melt or crush their tools. Given these extreme conditions, it was impossible for the Soviets to verify Nikolai's conjectures. However, by happy accident, they discovered that they may not have needed to go to the abiotic liquid. In theory, they could let it come to them. In the 1950s, Russian prospectors explored a region in Ukraine for oil reserves. After failing to find anything, they declared the area completely dry. However, they revisited the site several years later. This time, that same land was filled with oil. One prominent geologist in Ukraine hypothesized that the substance had been created in the mantle, not through biological decay, but through a natural FT process. The case for abiotic oil only seemed to grow in the 1980s. A Cornell University physicist named Thomas Gold dug a deep borehole near a Swedish lake in 1986. 360 million years before, a large meteor had slammed into the region, leaving a massive crater. Gold believed this impact had created fractures in the Earth, which allowed the inorganic liquid to seep up to the surface. And sure enough, he found petroleum that had come from the mantle. Or so he thought. The truth is, gold just assumed it had been created deep within the earth. His critics analyzed the samples gold had collected and determined that the oil had originated from the earth's surface before migrating farther down. In other words, the oil he found wasn't abiotic. Gold's findings may not be credible, but there's other evidence that abiotic oil exists. 
In 2002, an engineer at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden named Vladimir Kucherov conducted an experiment. He wanted to verify whether or not the atoms in the Earth's mantle would actually bond to create crude. He replicated the conditions in the upper mantle by superheating various molecules in a pressure chamber. To his delight, a fraction of the materials converted into complex hydrocarbons, which are a primitive form of petroleum. While skeptics accept that Kucherov's findings were valid and the planet might be able to produce abiotic oil, they still don't believe it would be worth the cost of drilling. For one thing, Kucherov was only able to generate small amounts of fuel, so it's unlikely that the Earth's abiotic reserves would be large. But don't forget that the Ukrainian wells seemingly refilled themselves. That means there must be large amounts of it somewhere. Except, it's hard to take those accounts at face value, especially knowing that the U.S. Geological Survey ran their own tests in the region too. They determined that the process of drilling into the earth often displaces rocks and pushes oil downward, so that it seems like it's coming from a greater depth. So the wells might have just accessed conventional oil that had been displaced in a previous exploration. Ultimately, it's likely that the Soviet case for abiotics was just Cold War propaganda. That's possible. But according to Jerome Corsi, the United States government is in league with big gas corporations. If they really are trying to cover up the research, the geological survey might be biased. I'll admit that these corporations have illegally joined forces to deceive the public before, but it's still difficult to believe Corsi's theory. He offers zero proof to back up his claim. Fair enough. Though I still think Corsi raised some important points that are worth looking into. On a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is completely unbelievable and 10 means it's true, I give conspiracy theory number 1 a 3. While the FT process is real, I don't think the Earth is creating it on its own, or that the U.S. government has actively suppressed research in this field. It seems a lot more likely that abiotic theory hasn't gained traction because its supporters haven't provided any proof. Because of this, I give the theory a two. We may never know if natural abiotic oil exists, but conventional oil has certainly changed the course of world history. It might even be the real motive for several deadly international conflicts, including the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003. Coming up, we examine if the U.S. used a war as an excuse to seize international wells. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. 
And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. In the late 1950s and 60s, the Soviet Union claimed that the Earth's mantle was producing large quantities of oil. So far, the data is inconclusive, but some believe we're standing on an unlimited supply of abiotic petroleum. For now, we'll stick with the conclusions from the Energy Information Administration. They calculate that the Earth's crust only has enough oil to last through 2050. Afterward, shortages will ensue, and superpowers will take extreme measures to hoard whatever reserves remain. This brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003 to secure more oil. In 1990, Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein, attacked the small emirate of Kuwait. He'd just ended a costly war with Iran and needed Kuwait's vast reserves to recoup his losses. This sent shockwaves through the rest of the world. United States President George H.W. Bush vehemently opposed the aggression. He feared Saddam would march into Saudi Arabia next and seize even more stockpiles of fuel. Iraq already had a thriving oil industry, and if Saddam controlled even more of it, he could tip the international power balance. Bush Sr. suggested that Saddam would even supply fuel to terrorists and cut off Western countries. To stop that from happening, the United States deployed forces to Kuwait. They quickly repelled the Iraqi army. Saddam endured this humiliation for nine years, but eventually took his revenge in October 2000. He demanded all his trading partners pay for his oil in European euros instead of U.S. dollars. Basically, currency only works if people use it. So the American government feared that if more countries followed Iraq's example, the dollar's value would plummet. Some estimates claimed as much as 20 to 40 percent. When President George W. Bush moved into the White House in January 2001, he made Saddam and the oil trade his top priority. And of all the world's leaders, he seemed the best equipped to handle the situation. Before becoming the commander-in-chief, Bush had been on the board of directors of a multi-million dollar gas firm. He had numerous wealthy connections in the industry, and many of them had bankrolled his campaign. In addition, several members of his cabinet had experience in the petroleum sector. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice was a member of the Chevron Corporation's board. Vice President Dick Cheney had been CEO of an oil service company and several appointees on Bush's energy committee had made their fortunes in similar ways. 
They all tried to force Saddam to revert back to the dollar, but they were powerless to do so. That is, until September 11, 2001. That day, 19 terrorists hijacked four planes and crashed them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania. The extremists weren't from Iraq. They were part of a radicalized sect of Islam known as Al-Qaeda, which was based in Afghanistan. But allegedly, Bush decided this would be the perfect opportunity to invade Saddam's territory anyway. He started by capitalizing on the nation's heightened fear of terrorism and claimed that Iraq possessed an arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs. A WMD is a chemical, biological, or nuclear bomb capable of causing widespread death and devastation. If Saddam really had access to these, he could have given them to terrorists. In light of Bush's warnings, Congress quickly developed the Iraq Resolution, which outlined the United States' rationale for the invasion. In it, they cited Saddam's supposed cache of highly lethal weapons and the need to protect the entire Middle East. Publicly, government leaders then framed the coming attack as a noble cause to put down a tyrant and protect civilians. There might be some truth to that narrative, but to this day, many suspect that oil remained the primary and perhaps only real motive. Admittedly, Bush's accusations about Iraq's WMDs were weak. A series of declassified British documents called the Downing Street Memos suggested this. One section reported Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMD, but the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy. That last part, fixed around the policy, is especially troubling. Best case scenario, it means the U.S. was shaping its information in a way that would justify war. Worst case, it meant that the U.S. was directly falsifying intelligence about Iraq's WMD program. Either way, key decision makers seemingly allowed political goals to manipulate the data, and that's never a good thing. But once America is on the warpath, nothing can stop it. To justify their continued aggression, Bush and his cabinet tacked another justification onto their reasons for attack, Saddam's numerous human rights violations. Bush's critics, like Representatives Nancy Pelosi and John Lewis, suspected this wasn't really a motivating factor. They questioned why America was willing to spend so much money defending the people of Iraq when it wouldn't aid other oppressed countries. According to these naysayers, the invasion all came down to petrol. But when they questioned Bush about his motivations, he denied it. He claimed that he truly wanted to protect the Iraqi people and help install a democratic government. And that was enough for Bush's allies. On March 20th, 2003, an international coalition of armed forces launched Operation Iraqi Freedom. The military quickly deposed Saddam and declared victory over his army. Immediately afterward, Bush attempted to pressure the new Iraqi government to pass oil laws that would grant American corporations access to their reserves. Suspiciously, it wasn't just Iraqi officials who drafted this legislation, it was also Western consultants. And the terms were laughably skewed in oil companies' favor. 
The deal granted them enormous control and exclusive rights to wells. It also included clauses that allowed the private corporations to keep a majority of the profits for themselves instead of reinvesting the money into local development. Iraq's parliament shot the contract down. They were willing to let U.S. companies drill on their land, but the license had to be more fair. While debate over the law dragged on, Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Total, and BP signed contracts with the Iraqi oil ministry. U.S. advisors from the State Department oversaw these contracts, which led to some suspicion over the Bush administration's real motives in the region. Even if Iraqi officials had wanted to resist, they weren't in a position to push back. U.S. soldiers were occupying the region and remained there well into the following decade. The armed forces built multiple permanent bases in a $750 million embassy in Baghdad. Troops stationed strategically near ports and oil fields suggested that they were there to ensure no one threatened their supply of black gold. It's possible they just wanted to maintain order in the area. Saddam had been defeated, but hostile militant groups still roamed through the nation. Immediately withdrawing could have destabilized the country even further. But a lot of unbiased third-party analysts agree that the Iraq War and the aftermath were all about oil. A Journal of Conflict Resolution study led by political scientist Vincenzo Bove gives this idea more credibility. Bove found that the more oil a place has, the more likely it becomes that a foreign power will interfere in its affairs. Conversely, the more oil a country imports, the more likely it is that they'll become involved with other countries. Since the United States consumes a lot of oil and Iraq produces a lot of fuel, the study suggests the events of 2003 may have been statistically inevitable. As were the events that followed. By 2014, Iraq was the second largest contributor to oil supply growth in the world at 3.4 million barrels a day. And companies like ExxonMobil were deeply embedded in the region. It's undeniable that petroleum companies profited from the war in Iraq. But that doesn't mean Bush actively collaborated with them. Ultimately, it would be too simplistic to reduce this war to a single motive. It definitely seems like oil was a factor, but Saddam Hussein's human rights violations are undeniable. Because of this, I give conspiracy theory number two a five out of 10. I think the Downing Street memo is telling especially its conclusion that the United States manipulated the facts to fit their policy. And that's not counting the government's disturbing pattern when it comes to foreign policy. The connection between countries with large petroleum reserves, especially those requiring intervention and U.S. involvement, seems clear. That's why I give this theory an 8 out of 10. Whether it was a righteous cause or a vindictive plot, the Iraq War ensured that the United States had access to plentiful oil. But even then, America still hadn't satiated its thirst. After the war, fuel companies went on to invade more territories, including nature reserves that would normally be protected by law. And it's possible they've been deceiving the public about the real reasons why.
Coming up, we'll take a look at how corporations have weaponized peak oil theory to expand their reach. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Now, back to the story. Many people believe President George W. Bush invaded Iraq in 2003 to secure oil. Allegedly... This was part of a larger effort to seize as much of the dwindling resource as possible before it was too late. This assumes the peak oil theory is true and that the world will run out of crude sometime around 2050. At first glance, this seems like terrible news for oil and gas companies. Less fuel means less business. But it's possible the concept of peak production is working to their advantage. This takes us to conspiracy theory number three. Corporations are using the narrative of scarcity to drill on nature reserves, imperiling countless endangered species. Oil extraction is often ecologically risky. Take offshore drilling. Aquatic rigs are marvels of architecture, but they pose a serious threat to the environment. Catastrophic accidents are rare, but smaller issues are still common. According to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, they're part of the reason why 157,000 barrels get spilled into the ocean every year. Issues like blowouts, where the pressure from a well forces petroleum back up the pipe, happen frequently. When they occur, workers can either try to contain the spill in special containers or simply divert the black liquid into the water. Even if most of the blowouts are mitigated, the countless small seeps can add up to cause even greater damage. And these accidents are considered minor. Larger-scale disasters are utterly devastating to hundreds of thousands of creatures. Spilled oil strips otters and birds of their insulating coating, which can lead to death by hypothermia. Turtles often mistake the substance for food, and whales inhale it so crude gets trapped in their lungs. It can also be poisonous to fish. Even if they survive, the exposure to petroleum can make them unsafe for human consumption. Fortunately, federal policies like the 1990 executive order signed by George H.W. Bush banned rigs from digging in certain parts of the coast. But George W. Bush diminished its power in 2008. He claimed that the environment wasn't at risk because improvements in drilling technology made spills less likely. Of all that new tech, nothing was more impressive than Deepwater Horizon, a floating, ultra-deepwater rig that could steer itself to new operating sites. 
It was an awe-inspiring feat of engineering that British Petroleum used off the coast of Louisiana. The idea was that they could create a hole and then temporarily cover it up so other crews could come by and extract what lay within it. In early 2010, BP set its sights on a location called the Macondo Prospect. The deepwater crew estimated the job would take 78 days, but management wanted it done faster. They gave the workers 51 days. Most employees would bristle under such an ambitious timeline, but this team took pride in its speed. They rushed to meet their goal. By April 2010, they'd made one of the deepest holes ever. At such extreme depths, the crude was under immense pressure. Drilling into it would be like puncturing a shaken can of soda with a screwdriver. But Deepwater was prepared. They had special tools to prevent the oil from blowing up while they sealed off the well. Plus, even if the fuel did surge, they had additional fail-safes in place, and the team was well-trained to implement them. As prepared as the team felt, there were two issues that blindsided them. First, they underestimated how intense a blowout at Macondo would be, since they weren't used to drilling at such intense pressures. Second, they hadn't experienced a surge in years, so they'd grown less cautious and disciplined. Most worrisome of all, upper management didn't set them straight. Their email instructions were brief and urged more speed in order to cut costs. So the workers continued their breakneck pace until they hit the pay zone on April 9th, 2010. But even then, they didn't slow down. The process for puncturing the reserve and plugging it up again is incredibly technical, so we'll spare you the details. Just know this, they cut corners on everything, from the cement they used to seal the opening, to the test they ran to make sure the pressure didn't force oil back up the pipe. As we covered earlier, mud, water, and petroleum did rush to the surface. It blew through the numerous high-tech safety mechanisms and exploded from the top of the rig. The highly flammable liquid soaked men like Caleb Holloway and Dan Barron, who were in the drill control room trying to stem the flow. The mist spread across the oil rig. One hint of a spark would ignite an inferno. As Holloway and Barron raced out of the room to warn everyone else, the first explosion rattled their teeth. They regained their footing and pressed on to the lifeboats, but few other people were there when they arrived. Without thinking, Holloway raced back to the crew's quarters, bent on saving his friends. He stumbled through smoke and over twisted metal. When he arrived, he gathered as many people as he could and led them back through the blaze. Explosions ripped through the facility as they clambered into the lifeboats. Thankfully, most of them escaped. Despite Holloway's bravery and the courage of countless others, the Deepwater Horizon spill was an unmitigated disaster. The drill hole dumped four million barrels of oil into the Gulf, cost BP over $65 billion in damages, and took the lives of 11 workers. Since then, Policymakers have introduced countless new safety protocols to ensure this disaster never happens again. But the truth is, even the strictest laws can't completely eliminate human error. 
Ultimately, this means that every drill operation, no matter how regulated, risks a massive spill. Some locations will be able to recover quickly, but an industrial accident could cause irreversible damage to places like Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. The ANWR is our nation's last great wilderness. Its 19 million acres look like something out of Lord of the Rings, with its vast tundras, frigid rivers, and proud mountains. For the last 30 years, it's been completely untouched remaining a refuge for thousands of migratory birds, caribou, foxes, and seals. In addition, many indigenous people live on the tundra. It provides them with food and holds sacred meaning for them. However, over the past three decades, politicians, environmentalists, and lobbyists have debated whether oil companies should be allowed to drill into the underground wells. Those in favor believe we need to tap as many areas as possible to meet the nation's ever-growing energy demands. Those against it claim there is a high likelihood of a spill, which could irreparably damage the land. Even without an accident, the rigs and petroleum processing plants would spoil the region's rugged beauty. In spite of this opposition, in late 2020, the Trump administration pushed a policy forward that would allow energy companies to explore the land and ransack its riches. Logistically, the massive undertaking would require four airstrips, 175 miles of road, massive pipelines, a water treatment plant, and a dock for barges. Drilling operations could potentially last for 50 years. But for the companies developing this land, it will all be worth it. By their estimates, the area holds 7.7 .7 billion barrels of crude. Well, that sounds like a lot, but Americans consume about 20.5 million barrels a day. That means there's only enough oil in the Anwar for about a year. It doesn't seem worthwhile to spend five decades getting such a small amount. Unless the world really is running out of oil. In that case, we'd want to pump every drop we can get. But that's not the argument lawmakers use to support this drilling project. On August 17, 2020, Alaskan Senator Dan Sullivan said that thousands of Alaskans rely on the petroleum industry for jobs. The government's motion to allow drilling in Anwar will bring even more professional opportunities to the area. In turn, this will boost the economy and improve the locals' quality of life. While that's definitely a good thing, there's no point in helping society if you destroy the environment in the process. The theory that oil and gas companies are using the peak oil theory to drill where they normally couldn't isn't that tough to rank. As we've seen, since this narrative became mainstream, the corporations have ramped up operations in previously pristine environments. That's why I give conspiracy number three an eight out of 10. I mostly agree with this. The government has permitted drilling on more land, but not because companies are strong-arming their way into it. Instead, they support the extraction because it creates jobs. Granted, the events on Deepwater Horizon prove that corporations have sacrificed the well-being of people and our planet to make a profit. But I think we can chalk that up to human error and greed, not some larger conspiracy. I have to give this last theory a 6 out of 10. 
It's no wonder our three conspiracy theories are so widespread. Compared to other episodes, which deal with secret intelligence programs, shady business dealings, and assassinations, this affects us directly. Oil touches every aspect of our day-to-day. -day. We can't avoid its impact. If powerful leaders really are hiding additional resources, waging war or poisoning the environment in their crusade for crude, then millions of lives have changed around the globe as a result. It seems very possible the U.S. really did depose Saddam Hussein to control his reserves. Bush's numerous personal ties to the industry and dubious accusations of WMDs all seem to indicate that he was desperate for more. It's not an airtight theory, but it seems to be the most reasonable of the three. However, perhaps what's most frightening isn't a conspiracy at all, but an undisputed fact. As we mentioned before, the Energy Information Administration calculates that the Earth only has enough oil reserves to last until 2050. That's less than 30 years away. After that, no one knows for sure how the world will react and adapt. We can hope that the fallout won't be disastrous. After all, the EIA also forecasts that more people will adopt renewable energy and biofuels in the coming years. Ideally, enough countries will transition that we can avoid a crisis. Ultimately, oil is losing its economic authority. That means if corrupt leaders really are pulling the strings for selfish gain, they'll lose their power and influence as well. Which means this story may have a happy ending, provided we're all around long enough to see it to the conclusion. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Robert Heckert, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.